0: (laughs) I tried it last week, it didn't work either. (laughs) All right, I have a few announcements before we get started while the band's getting down and getting ready. Um, If you do have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Hosea. We'll be in chapter two today. A few announcements for you. Uh, There is the second nursery nursery workers meeting today. Um, If you did not attend last week, which I, I think everybody did, which is why I was watching kids, that was exciting. Um, (laughs) That is today. You can talk to Kim if you have any questions about that. Um, If you signed up for the Trinity class, the Bible conference with Dr. Ware today at First Baptist Huber Heights on the website, we will be, um, if if you need to know how to get there, you can meet everybody at the Coleman's house, uh, Anthony and Chastity Coleman. Um, All of the parents who are dropping off childcare, if you registered that. Um, They will be meeting at at the Coleman's house, so you guys can all kind of carpool together there. You need to be there by 445 if you're dropping off kids to make sure that you have time to get to First Baptist Huber. If you're not carpooling, or or you know where you're going, um, or you know how to use Google, um, you can just meet us at First Baptist Huber Heights at 5 o'clock. The class starts at 530, but we want to make sure that we have seats together that we can uh, not walk in (laughs) five minutes late like we always do at Alumni Academy. Um, (laughs) I want you guys to make a better impression on him than we did. So uh, meet us there at 5 o'clock. There's a movie night that we are sponsoring with, GymQuest, coming up. It is a kids' night out. It is March 2nd from 5.30 to 8.30. Uh, Your kids are certainly welcome to come to that. If you have any questions about that, you need to talk to Tiffany. Uh, You can talk to her normally on Sundays or um, email her, call her, text her, and get any information. We'll be needing some workers for that. Um, But she's not found out from them yet what needs they have. If you are new today, I want to welcome you. Um, I want to encourage you guys to uh, join a home gathering Bible study if you are not currently in one. Um, Particularly, well, in general always, but particularly for this study. Uh, This study in Hosea does not have a whole lot of imperatives that I can offer from the pulpit. Um, There are things that we can pick out and that certainly can be applied to us. But most of our applications for this series in particular will come at our home gatherings. Um, As we kind of wade through most of what God is saying and feeling and expressing and threatening and lamenting on, we need to kind of sort through that in a much more personal matter and uh, style than I can do from up here. And finally, um, our Haiti Love mission trip is coming up, and we are collecting medical supplies again this year. Um, We used almost everything that we went down there with. Um, in the course of two hours, the one day that we served in the clinic. Um, so we would like to take many more supplies um, so that we don't use them all up while we're there, and they still have some stuff uh, to, to take care of them. So if you have any questions about that, it's in your worship guide. Last announcement. Uh, I'm excited to announce that this will be the first year that renovation goes to camp. Um, so for kids' camp, uh, none of them are in here, but so don't tell them. Uh, well, there's one. Uh parents, get your kids excited about camp. We're going to be going to Seneca Lake um, in June. I will be the recreation director that week, um, so I'll be able to help kind of keep tabs on them. Uh, but Bruce and Kim will be our chaperones for that. Uh, the sign-up list is on the, the front table, or will be, and I have information for the parents if you need it, as well as my favorite thing ever, medical forms. <laughs> okay. Um, are the bane of my existence. All right. So with that, um, you can get some more information on there. If you have any questions, you can talk to me, and I will help you get settled with that. All right, let's hop into this. Last week, we started with a lot of history, right? So there was a lot of history up front, and it was necessary so that we knew kind of where we were going when it came to this prophecy. It's one thing to just hear prophecy and say, okay, I get what God's saying. Why is he saying it? How does that fit into our context? If we don't have a good context and basis for um, what he's saying, it's going to be very hard for us to interpret, and it's going to be very hard for us to even then be able to take it from that context into our own. So last week we did a lot of of history. Today, before we start with our text, I want to offer a little bit more background information, particularly speaking about what is a prophet. So when we talked about Hosea and we say that he is a minor prophet— what does it mean that he's a prophet, who's he talking to, why is he talking, and what lets him be able to talk, right? So out of all these things, um, giving some more background for what prophets were their functions I think will help us get a little bit more, uh, a better understanding of the context of which he's coming from, Um, and I see a lot of you guys are chattering and like freezing, I'm sorry the propane is out, Um, it happens once every year, so... Um, you can use your coat, and my wife can give you my jacket if you're really freezing. Um, so with that, let's talk about prophets first. So when we look at the office of prophet in your notes, um, the first thing is, is who are they? And before we get to really who are they, it's what's going on with Hosea? Why is there a prophet in Hosea? So if we're looking at Hosea, you heard um, the the judgment speeches last week, right? And they were not at all encouraging, and we left on a very sad note, right? Uh, I'm excited to tell you that will be different this week. Uh, but with that, there was a lot of just heavy stuff, right? And we're ending with, and he for, they forgot me. They forgot God. The spouse who I loved, the bride who I loved, forgot me. And that's the pain that we end with. And so we look at some of those judgments that God had on Israel that were very... PG-13, right, explicit, um, shaming her, um, stripping her of everything that she had, and and we wonder why is God that harsh? I mean, we know it's the God of the Old Testament, he's, you know, thunder, smiting, all that, right, as opposed to the God of the New Testament, who's like bipolar to that one and gracious, and we miss some of the the mixture between that. So when we look at the Old Testament God, he is not just the smiter, all right? He's already tried to deliver this message twice, right? So, of the 12 tribes of Israel, right, we have Judah, who is the southern kingdom that we talked about, and then we have Israel, who's the northern kingdom. Now, there are 10 tribes in the northern kingdom. So, you have Judah, which is one. You have the Levites, which are the priests, which is another tribe, but they didn't really have a specific residence. Then you have the rest of the tribes in the northern kingdom, and so before Hosea comes along, God has already attempted to, to contact them to, to recall them from their sin by sending uh, Jonah and Amos. You guys are familiar with Jonah? Uh, he's the big fish dude. Amos, not many people are familiar with him so much. Uh, now, Jonah and Amos were both of Judah. So they came from the southern kingdom. And while there still are people, that would be sort of, I guess, like Texas or California, who are kind of their own nations in the United States coming here and telling us what to do, right? So they're kind of our people, but they're so different and so weird and so out there that it's just different when you come to the Midwest and the heart of it all in Ohio, right? Okay. Um, So after that didn't work, or you can read through those accounts, uh, we find ourselves in Hosea. Now, Hosea is one of their own. Hosea is one of the tribes, the top ten tribes. Uh, Now, out of that, the pleading is the same case. Nothing really changes in the message. But you consider Jonah's ministry, Amos's ministry, and then Hosea's ministry, which we talked about last week, is about 40 years. So By the time he gets married, has kids, and continues to fulfill all of his ministry, we're talking a long time. So when you extrapolate all that, this is not God's first attempt. This is not on a whim. So what I want you to understand is that Yahweh is not short-tempered with Israel. He he doesn't have um, a short temper where we sin and, and smite happens. He's incredibly patient with us. And we've already seen his pain expressed in Hosea, right? And that they were deep in sin, deep. So not just an affair, plural affairs. They were away from God and they had forgotten him. So any immediate action would absolutely be justified. However, Yahweh still takes a merciful approach every time. So now considering a prophet, what does the office of prophet comprise? So who is Hosea besides this 14-year-old man-boy who had to marry this woman who would eventually leave him and go into prostitution? So we look at who are they? Well, Amos says that he was neither prophet nor son of a prophet. There's really no pedigree. It's not like it gets passed down in the family tree. Uh, Now, if you have your Bibles, which... I don't really want you to leave. Just write down this in your, in your notes. Amos seven fourteen through 17. It says, Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet nor prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. Now therefore hear the word of the Lord. You say, Do not prophesy against Israel, and do not preach against the house of Isaac. Therefore thus saith the Lord... Your wife shall be a prostitute in the city, and your sons and your daughters shall fall by the sword, and your land shall be divided up with a measuring line. You yourself shall die in an unclean land, and Israel shall surely go into exile away from its land. (laughs) Bam, right? He's a herdsman. Sounds a little bit like David. Pulled out of that by God. And the king says to him that first section, Do not prophesy against me, and then in verse 17, it says, therefore, thus says the Lord. So there's no pedigree. It's not passed down. So they can be any person. Now, how do we clarify exactly who they are? They would have a short-term prophecy that would come true. All right. And if that short-term prophecy, so they can't say "and in, in, in 50 years, this is going to happen. All right. Because then you're waiting and he's prophesying all along. Something short-term happens and it would come true. And then he would deliver a future tense or a much more long-term prophecy. And that would certainly come true, but it would be much later. Now, if it was false, if the short-term one turned out to be false, they're stoned. So that's not a lot of fun. In the New Testament, we see that not many should aspire to be teachers as they will be judged more harshly. I am afraid of God's wrath. These guys would be too, but also rocks, okay? Um, we get that from Deuteronomy eighteen fifteen through 22. It says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. From your brothers, it is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, well, how may we know that the word of the Lord has not spoken... When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. And we see that they, they will die. So when it's, what did they do? The next part in your outline. They proclaimed God's word or decrees in a forth-telling manner. So to foretell is simply to tell the future. To foretell is with a message. So a prophet was understood as a foreteller of the divine message, not just a foreteller of future events. His ministry was often more concerned with proclamation of the word and of God's decrees than with prediction. But it's not simply an event that will come true, it's what's the message behind it, comes with it, paired with it, like that. So who do they foretell to? They didn't live in a vacuum, it's not like they were living in Cleveland and just sitting at the kitchen table, and the word of the Lord comes to him, and he says it out loud. No, he is telling it to people. In fact, Hosea, the way it is written, it appears as if most of the book was written by Hosea's disciples. So the people that were listening to him, that were following him, uh, we see that they heard and saw all of this account, and then later were able to transcribe uh, the majority of the book. So he had people that they listened to. Uh, So primarily there's three people That here the word or the fourth telling. It's the people of Israel, which would be northern and southern kingdom, so all of God's chosen people, the priesthood or the Levites, and then the royalty or the kings. We see messages given to each of those different groups. So finally, the difference of major versus minor. Why is Hosea considered a minor prophet? Is it that his message wasn't as important? Is it that it just not as big as a deal? And Isaiah, who's a major prophet, had more blessing, more Holy Spirit, more, more message to give. It's simply based on size, all right? So the major prophets are considered major because Isaiah is a lot of chapters, <laughs> okay? Uh, Hosea is the largest of the minor prophets. Uh, the rest of them are incredibly short. So that's really the main difference between that. And what's interesting is we have the books of history, the books of poetry. We have then the major and then minor prophets, right? A lot of the history contains a lot of prophecy. So we see large amounts of foretelling, proclamation, in those. When you have Nathan talking to David, right? So those prophets are still in there. So don't think that only the ones that are major and minor prophets are where you find prophecy. We see it all through Scripture. It's a huge part of narrative in the Old Testament. So let's review a little bit of last week before we, we kick off with diving into, into this. Um, Primarily, if you have your notes, look at the structure. That's what we want to spend a little bit of time on first. The structure being A, the story, right? It's a story of hope or judgment? judgment. Hmm? Judgment. Judgment, okay. Because the names of the sons and daughters of Gomer are pronounced, right? So Jezreel talks about the destruction that will come, uh, the not my people, and the no compassion or no not pitied, right? So those are the judgments. Following that is B, which is a oracle, and it is an oracle of hope, hope. yes. And then we find another oracle, the second oracle, and that is an oracle of judgment. Again, right, it's a hard left turn. So then we find ourselves now in B1. And we're talking about the third oracle. And then we'll move into A1, which is the story. And then we'll conclude this first section, um, the major section of the story. uh, Not an allegory, remember, but the story of Hosea and Gomer, Yahweh and Israel. So first is the third oracle, Salvation Speech 2. Let's read our text, much shorter this week. We'll start in chapter 2 of Hosea, in verse 14. It says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her, and bring her into the wilderness, and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards, and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer, as in the days of her youth, as at, a, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. And no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth. And they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, the war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you To me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth, and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, You are My people, and he shall say, You are my God. And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisin. So I bought her for fifteen shekels of silver, and a homer and a lathek of barley. And I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man so will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephah or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. Fathers, we dig into your word and we move um, to understand what you have for us in this passage and these prophecies against israel father may we remember that we ourselves are gomer we are israel father we run away from you we find comfort in things that uphold us that you have given us we call other things master father all things of which you have provided and that on their own have absolutely no power Father, remind us as we move through this that it may not be um, sexual promiscuity, Father. It is certainly emotional. Father, we look to other things rather than you. Break our hearts of this and let us see and illuminate in our hearts your word for us today. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, a gracious restoration. The cloud of judgment is lifted. So, as the judgment was described in actions and then speech... So we have the story, actions, and then the speeches and the judgment speeches. So now the hope is affirmed in speech first, and then in action. In speech, it is two fourteen through 23, and then in action in 3, 1 through 5. So the first thing, oracle number 3, salvation speech 2. This is a renewal with cosmic consequences, all right? This is specifically Yahweh speaking to Israel before we move into the story then of Gomer Hosea. So the movement of the text finds us unprepared for the surprise of fourteen. The accusation and forgot me, the last part of verse thirteen that we ended on last week, they forgot me, leads us to what we're gonna see later in four six is a threat of I will a threat again of I will forget her and her children. We see later that in the next chapter in verse four, he forgets the priests and their children. The same way that they have treated him, he then will turn on her. So from there we go into verse 14, and there therefore, behold, I will allure her. So how do we make that kind of jump? Well, what's interesting, first of all, is if you write in your Bible, or what I would encourage you to do is make note of all the I wills, okay? All of the I wills is I am saying I will. And what this speaks to us, first of all, is divine initiative. Everything that is going to happen is because of Yahweh. Yahweh takes the first step. Gomer, Israel, has run away from God, and he takes the first step in restoring. So he says words like allure her, enticement, seduction. That's the kind of feel that we have in that. He's trying to seduce his bride, which is appropriate in the marriage relationship, correct? So that kind of divine initiative of enticing, seducing, allure her, bring her. And then speak tenderly, literally upon her heart. He is trying to speak directly to her heart. It's a very romantic context, appropriate for this month, right? And what's interesting is he says, then, I will bring her into the wilderness. The wilderness doesn't sound good, right? When they had to wander the wilderness for 40 years. But what happened at the end of that 40 years? They were renewed. A new generation had come up. The old one had died, right? And in that moment, that was the... the almost the climax and culmination of the exodus, right? They're getting ready to come out of the wilderness and enter into the promised land. And in that moment, Israel was ready. They were ready after 40 years of wandering to enter into the promised land that they and their fathers had been promised, right? So what was Israel's answer then? Yes, let's go. I am here for you. And so then the wilderness for us and Hosea bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her, as saying that in that genitive state where they were young, they were growing up, and their answer was yes, and they were ready to move forth, he is wooing her and promising her again in that same context. So then we move into verse 15, and there I will give her her vineyards. Earlier we saw that he was taking those away. Why? Because they wanted to give it to the bales. The fertility god's bale was getting credit for providing all this food, providing all the animals, and then they celebrate with that. So God's judgment was, I will remove that, and you can have lots of fun trying to organize your parties with, uh, without any means. Go ahead and get drunk on what, what grapes? Oh, I, I'm the one that provides those. Well, I took them away. But now he's promising and restoring that he's going to then give provision back to them. So where He stripped everything away, to say that I am God, I am the one who does this, he's now restoring and then again provides. The valley of Achor, which was destruction and judgment, Achan, we talked about that last week, is now a place of hope. We see reversals happening all the time in Hosea where God takes something that was broken and restores it. And Israel, again, is broken. They rely on their military might. They rely on the fertility gods, the Baals. Trying to get that which God promised earlier, outside of God's timing. So finally we end with, and there shall there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. Now we don't have to he doesn't give us the answer to assume that it's yes. So verse sixteen and seventeen. And in that day declares the Lord. You will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. So in that day is an, another example of a future promise. We're looking again to the future in this passage. I will in that day, not I am, but I will Or in that day, future promises from God. And we see then the language of marriage. And it's not simply a correction of the terms of intimacy, whereas earlier in chapter 2, if you remember, Gomer is referring to the bales as, as my master, my wages, my reward. Everything about it, she is being selfish and, and calling her own. So she is missing one of the foundational principles of marriage, which it is about the other one. Everything that you are and own is your partner's. But she is hoarding everything for herself and being selfish, and she's calling the Baals hers, her masters, her feasts, her moons, her festivals, all those things she claims for. So God now, Yahweh, is saying not just a correction of terms, but in purposely using the language of marriage here. So he, call, he says, you will call me my husband, literally my special man. My, you are mine. You are special to me. You are dear to me. You matter to my heart. So you spoke tenderly to my heart, and now that heart has been changed, and she's going to call Yahweh my husband, and not my Baal. Now, Baal literally means Lord or Master. So we're moving away from a respectful but formal tone of voice or relationship between Yahweh and Israel and Hosea and Gomer. It's not just my Lord or my master, but my husband, my special man. You are dear to my being. And what's interesting after that, when we had talked about the character or meaning of names, of how it wraps up their character, uh, their legacy, their existence and meaning, he then says in verse 18, and I will make, or I'm sorry, in verse 17, for I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth. And they shall be remembered by name no more. So when we're moving from verse 13 of, and they forgot me, who are they forgetting now? Baal. They will forget Baal's name. She will. He will remove Baal's name from her mouth, and they will be remembered no more. So now we move from forgetting Yahweh to forgetting Baal. It's a removal of name, so it is to destroy Utterly. It's his character, his meaning, his legacy, and his existence. There is no more Baal. It is simply Yahweh. Verse 18. I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. So we have two specific threats of judgment are reversed, resulting in complete security. He had taken away provision, right? And he had taken away protection. Now we see, again, gracious restoration. So the first thing that he reverses is that there is no danger to crop or person to be feared by creatures. He's making for them a covenant, which we'll talk about in a second, that on that day the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things on the ground, they will no longer infiltrate the crops, the people, poisonous animals. Um, They will be protected and safe from them. And then the next thing that he mentions in verse 18 is that there's no military invasion. There will be no military invasion tolerated. Instruments of war will be removed from the land, and that goes back to the name Jezreel. So we look at our second action from last week, Jezreel, the place where Jehu will be and his dynasty will be removed, and the bloodshed will be given to him that he used. That's another reversal. I'm excited about this stuff. I like it. It's cool. So much contrast and transition. you have to, you have to reach back, put on your try hard caps. remember, all right. We're reaching back to all these former judgments and restoring them. Without the judgments, there would be no restoration. All right? All right, so then the covenant in verse 18. I will make for them a covenant. This covenant differs from normal uses, okay? The normal use for a covenant is specifically an initiation. So it is the beginning. So when we make a covenant of marriage, it's the start of the covenant. This covenant is is, is different. We're talking about binding or tying together. So specifically, what are we binding or tying together? It includes treaties made foolishly or treacherously with foreign nations. So What is incredibly interesting about this is Yahweh is getting ready to bring on to the covenant that he made with Abraham all of the treaties and the foolish things that his bride did and says, I will submit myself to those terms. So whereas we see the original covenant being with Abraham asleep, right? And God does the entire covenant himself. He's the one who walks between the animals. He is the one that everything relies on. That covenant, he brings into all of these foolish treaties, all this political mess that has happened since Jehu and Jeroboam the first. It also remembers Yahweh's initial covenant. So we have then the tying of the two together make sure you make note here this is not an amending it is not as if the original covenant was not satisfactory and needed alteration as if our bill of rights was not complete and we need to amend it right this covenant was not incomplete it did not need to be added to however he then ties or binds together yahweh's initial covenant and man's stupidity right and he says i Make a covenant with you and tie these two things together. And your terms have now become my terms. Very, very gracious indeed. 19 through 20. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. The first thing I want you to see is that there is a huge focus on the legal and contractual nature of this relationship. So remember from last week, originally he was told to go find a wife, right? And we saw immediate, immediate obedience. We skip the betrothal period, we skip uh, the courting period, and we move right into marriage. Now this cost him something, right? He had to pay the dowry in order to get his Israelite woman. And in there, we have a legal contractual obligation. Same that we do here, right? This same legal and contractual nature is on this relationship. So betrothed is more formal. It demands negotiation, and there's an intense intensity that follows from its its use. Again, in interpreting Scripture, you need to pay attention to repetition. Repetition in Hebrew and in Greek are both stresses of emphasis. We don't do it so much here. We just have commas, right? So I will go eat pizza, pop, and celery with ranch. As opposed to I will go eat pizza, I will go eat, uh, I don't remember what else I said, celery with ranch, I will go eat, right? Um, what is the emphasis And I will go eat, I will go eat, I will go eat? I'm going to eat. And I will go eat pizza, celery with ranch, and drink Mountain Dew. What is the emphasis? The foods. So if we see repetition, it means something, and we have to discern then what that means. So, if it's "I will betroth," "I will betroth," "I will betroth," what's the emphasis? Yahweh's initiative; He's the one doing the work. Now, it doesn't neglect or bring no meaning then to what He's doing it in or why He's doing it. We still can see that, but the emphasis is on what He is doing. It's not in the man; it's not in Israel; it's not in Gomer; it is not in us. It is in God, in his glory, and what he is doing. I will do this. I will do this. I will do this. And so what does he do this stuff in? Well, we see what's interesting is attributes of Yahweh. He brings all of his attributes to this relationship, all attributes needed for a relationship stamped by loyalty, integrity, and love. So if we're going to have a marriage here between Israel again, and Yahweh, if we're going to restore that relationship, we need to have something that's going to work. And what has been lacking before is certainly not Yahweh. So what does he bring to this? Well, the first thing that he brings is righteousness. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness. So righteousness is Yahweh's commitment to be all that his covenant role as sovereign and savior demands. All right? But we have no righteousness of our own. It's pretty helpful that Yahweh brings righteousness to the relationship, right? So what is that righteousness? It's everything that he needs to be in order to be committed to the covenant as his role of Yahweh, sovereign and savior. So this is the straightness of God's own character as opposed to the character that we see of of Gomer. What kind of character does she have? Is she straight in her path? Absolutely not. But we have the hard line and straightness of Yahweh. The second thing that we see is righteousness and injustice. I would suggest you write down these five, and they're going to be coming back up. Justice, Yahweh's fairness in all his relationships, as he honors obedience and corrects waywardness. It's without whimsy or arbitrariness. So he's not responding differently every time, he is consistent in his justice, he is fair in all of his relationships. He honors obedience. He corrects waywardness. And it's without whimsy or arbitrariness. The next thing that we see is in steadfast love. Steadfast love, it means his covenant loyalty. That's describing both the attitude and the behavior of the Lord, who made a pledge to his people and full freedom. Yahweh was at no time required to make a covenant with Abraham. He made the covenant with Abraham. He set the terms. He walked through and committed to it, and he has always upheld his covenant. And so he is steadfast. It's not just that he is love, but he is faithful. He is long-suffering in his love. He is steadfast. It's an attitude and behavior. It's not a begrudging love. It's an attitude that reflects who he is. Finally, we see in mercy. In steadfast love and in mercy. Mercy glows with tenderness and compassion, especially as it shows itself to the weak, the needy, and the oppressed. So we look at who is Israel right now. Israel is a country or a nation that that relies on its military might. It's been walked on, it's conquered, but it relies on its military might for, for protection, for refuge. But now, they're going to be stripped of that, right? Jezreel. God will bring this about he will bring the dynasty of Jehu to an end they will be exiled but we saw the hope of the uniting again right? we look forward to those um, prophecies the four that we talked about last week being fulfilled right? we see Jesus coming we see the return from exile we see then the death on the cross and the freedom that we find in there and then ultimately the second coming all of that is the fulfillment of these prophecies in the long term And we certainly will see them in their glorious completion. So with Israel then being at the start of this, the judgment has to come. Exile will come. The temple will be destroyed. All these things happen and will come. So they end up being very weak, needy, oppressed, scattered. They're a nation that needs uniting. And then we find that Yahweh has mercy on them. It glows with tenderness and compassion. last one is in faithfulness. It's verse 20, it's separate. And it's interesting that this one follows after another emphasis of "I will betroth." So he says again, "I will betrothed." And this one's separate from all the other aspects. Why is that? Emphasis. Has Gomer been righteous? No, Has she been just? No. Has she been in steadfast love? No. Has she been merciful? No. Has she been faithful? Certainly not. Certainly not. This one glows so much brighter than the other ones. If you want to talk about faithfulness and an adulterer, don't even go together. So, faithfulness, then Yahweh brings up separately. He says that this conveys Yahweh's utter dependability, the reliability of all his words and deeds, especially his covenant promises to marriage to more descendants than are on the sand of the the beaches, the stars in the sky, all these things that you want now that you try to get with the fertility gods, Baal, in my timing, in my covenant, in my promise, I will bring these things about. I will be faithful to you. I will stay with you. I am reliable and I am dependable. So the climax is reached in a one-word promise, and you shall know the Lord. Know. Know again is appropriate to the intimacy of marriage, right? Adam knew his wife. Not just things about her, but, you know, the, the, the way Thursday was, right? Knew his wife. Genesis 4.1. It's the meaning here that is that the bride will make the appropriate response to the bridegroom by committing herself as fervently and faithfully to the terms of the covenant he has so last week when we saw no meant to stay in step with right to agree upon to not forget the terms of the covenant to not forget god himself and the attributes that come along with that she forgot him but now she will know him you shall know the lord so the covenant loyalty and obedience are the core of knowing yahweh And they manifest themselves in precisely those qualities that Yahweh pledges to bring to the marriage. So those, those attributes that we saw, that's precisely the core to knowing Yahweh. Those are attributes of God. Those are the things that we know that He is in perfect amount. Right? So those things are absolutely required in order to have loyalty, justice, and obedience. And a covenant relationship. And so with that, He lays it out and He says, And you shall know the Lord. So these are what I'm bringing to the table. This is who I am. And now you will know me again. Verse 21. We move on into, I'm sorry, I don't want to skip ahead. Back to to knowing. So if, if that's what God is bringing to it, I was getting ahead of myself. I'm sorry. What he's offering is those five, those attributes, right? What's interesting is in knowing the Lord, it's not simply being aware of. So so before last week, we talked about how it's one thing to, to not know the precepts of God. It's one thing to not know Him and the covenant that He has established. It's another thing to know it and then to forget. So it's one thing to know things about your wife that are absolute to her character, her essence. It's one thing to know things about your husband that are absolutely essential to their character or essence. It's another thing to know those and then forget. So, if Jess doesn't know who my favorite band is, that's okay. okay? I'm not always sure about that. Um, that's not essential to my character or my essence, right? If she forgets my name, that's a pretty big deal. Especially if we were in Old Testament and my name meant like something super specific about who God meant for me to be. That's the kind of knowing that we're talking about and forgetting. So if Israel forgot God's name and who he is and the attributes that are contained in I am, that's a big deal. So if he reminds them of that, then he is not just going to ask that you are aware of that, but that you reciprocate. So we go back to those, those uh, same attributes. So what does Yahweh ask of Israel or Gomer? Righteousness, fulfillment of all covenant requirements to him and each other. To God, to Yahweh, and to each other, the other nations or other tribes of Israel. So he asks for righteousness, he asks for justice. The safeguarding of the rights of every member of the community. How, how can we be righteous to God? How can we be just to God? We can't. We manifest those in the communicable attributes. So, the things that God communicates to us that we are able to then express, we are to do that to those that we are a part of. Now, for us, specific application the church, right? We act in righteousness towards each other. We fulfill our covenant that we've made with each other. We're just to each other. We safeguard the rights of every other member of the community. We act in steadfast love. So, we extend the covenant grace to others with the same goodwill that Yahweh had shown to them. So we are to love others as God has loved us. That's intense. Mercy, warm concern for others, especially those in distress. And finally, faithfulness, reliability in the keeping of promises and the fulfillment of obligations and in the constancy of upright conduct. The same things he brings to the table, he requires of us. Obviously, we cannot reciprocate directly or to the same amount. He is infinitely God and infinitely perfect in those attributes. And we cannot add anything to God. We have no righteousness of our own. We are totally depraved people who cannot bring anything to God. So we act in correspondence through using the Holy Spirit and using those attributes that he communicates to us to share with each other. So Hosea's restoration of Gomer to their marriage in chapter 3 will demonstrate how profoundly Israel needed God's bride price and knowledge of him. What we're getting ready to see in the action is a physical manifestation for us to understand how drastically far away and absolutely ignorant of God's or Yahweh's promises are to Israel. We're going to see a picture of that to show how far away we were. Just like Israel forgot these things about God, we forget these things about God. Now, twenty-one through twenty-three. Sorry. And in that day I will declare I will answer, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land. And I will have mercy on no mercy, and I will say to not my people, you are my people, and he shall say, you are my God. We have two great promises, and bring the salvation speech to a glorious conclusion. Restoration of fertility to the land, and then again, changing of the children's names to the declaration of salvation. So first, the promise of fertility recalls judgments of deprivation. In chapter 2, verse 9 and 12, we see that he is depriving them, right? Judgment by frustration. Stopping them from getting the things that they need. Depriving them. So we see a chain of communication. If he's going to restore this fertility and restore to them these things, we see it has to come from God. He's the one that withheld so to restore it has to start from the same source. We see this chain of communication. So Hosea to the heavens, the source of rain, the heavens to the earth, the source of crops, the earth to the crops themselves, and then the crops to Jezreel, which is now a pun for Israel and a slap at the Baals, and the world where it was God who is the source of all well-being. So we ultimately see that God <laughs> kind of mocks Baal again after having already removed his name, his legacy, his existence. He now says, You were supposed to provide these things. I'm the one who will. I will initiate this thing again. So the key is answer. It's best understood as a shout or a gesture in response to a crying need. They've been deprived, they've been frustrated, their judgment by frustration, and now they are in great need, so they cry out. And every time you see answer, it is a crying out. I will answer the heavens. I will cry out to the heavens, and they will answer the earth. And the earth will cry out to the grain, the wine, and the oil. And they will cry out to Jezreel. Is an answer or a response to that crying need. We see that not pitied or no mercy now has a reversal. I will have mercy on no mercy. There's no response in there. But in the next one we see not my people. There's a response from the people. Right? So I will say to not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. Where we had forgotten God halfway through this chapter, we have now remembered him and call upon and trust him once again. So for us, what do we get out of this, this salvation speech? We see that God judges, and it's an expression of his, his feeling, um, his passion, for Israel, the same kind of passion that a husband has for a wife, or that a wife has for a husband. And we see that this judgment is is a sorrowful thing for him, right? He always is sorrowful in what he's bringing, but it must be done. It is for their good. So he brings them back in this judgment, and then he reverses the depth (laughs) and depravity and destruction that would come. And so for us, we told you on Tuesday and Wednesday night, what makes you Gomer? What do you find comfort in? And there are tons of different answers that came out, uh, at least on, on Wednesday night. We have to make sure that we don't just watch this story from a distance, but that we place ourselves in the narrative. Because this is for us, too. So what makes you, what makes me Gomer? What do I rely on? More than God, what do I run to when I need comfort? Is it Yahweh? Is it my job? Is it my spouse? Is it something about me my my intellect, my um, hobbies, my passions, my desires? What makes me Gomer because if i can if I can discern that, if I can come to terms with the fact that I'm not always being faithful and that it's offensive to God and that it hurts him in such a way that only the marriage relationship can really define for us. It's not just he called me a name and that's offensive. It's my wife left me. She forgot who I am. If we can come to terms with the fact that our sin means that, then this restoration means so much more. This restoration of seeing that God is righteous, just, steadfast in His love, merciful and faithful, that He provides everything, and that He then calls me children of God. I get to call Him my husband. I get to call Him my God. So to wrap this up, chapter 3. And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man, and is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisin. So a little bit of setup for running into this real quick is, first we should know that there's no statement of, of sequence, except for the word again. So we talked about the chronological order last week. Um, if you're confused on that still, you can listen to that podcast again or, or talk to me, and I'll help explain that. But we look at our order, and we understand that this biblical order is not chronological order, right? The hope and restoration that comes from God comes first, before any man, right? So theology trumps chronology here, okay? So, again, should be read, said to me again, versus go again. It's not a go again as if this is like the fifth time, or it's... Yahweh's speaking to him. So it puts that interpretation of said to me again, puts the spotlight on Yahweh speaking rather than the command itself, man's action. It's not that Hosea is going again. It's that God is saying to him, you need to restore. Hosea's response comes in two parts, and it's much more central than so he went and took Gomer that we saw in chapter 1, right? And chapter 1 is so he obeyed, right? And here we have a couple different responses. It's two parts. And and it shows much more about the relationship. The third thing is that Hosea speaks directly to Gomer in verse 3 for the only time in the book. You say, well, Hosea was talking earlier. It was through his children. He says, plead with your mother. So he's talking to the children and saying, plead with your mother these things. This is the first time that we see him talking to Gomer. The fourth thing is that the the memoir, or the the story here in chapter 3, 1 through 5, is in the first person singular, okay? This is Hosea as narrator, narrator, and actions 1 through 4, from last week, so the taking of the wife, the naming of first son, naming of second, her first daughter, and naming of second son, are all um, in the third person. So this is is Hosea, narrator, all right? Gomer is not named... She's called woman, love a woman. Go take has become go love. So go take a wife says go love. It changes the whole message from the corruption of Israel's idolatry to the constancy of Yahweh's love. So in chapter one, go take a wife now becomes go love. So verse one through two, as we bring this to a close, is after a tantalizing look to the future hope, because it's I will. In that day of the end of chapter 2, we see this look to the hope, uh, to future hope. These verses jerk us back to the sinful realities of the present. The future is a glorious thing. But we can't just sit here and look for heaven. There are sinful realities in our lives and in our worlds uh, today that we have to deal with. And we have to deal with them first, and we have to repent of them first. We have to move from them first. So it appears that her situation is precisely what it was when the children were commanded to plead with her. Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. Israel is still captivated by the sensual cult as her love for raisin cakes suggests at the end of verse one. She undoubtedly treasured uh, those raisin cakes, which don't I hate raisin cookies. they're absolutely awful. Um, oatmeal raisin. Ugh. She likes them, um, very common thing in that culture, uh, but they were typically of um, the Baals. They were other uh, gods' devices. So she considers them treasured as gifts from the Baals. considers them part of her harlot's hire, where she claims my reward in chapter 2, and perhaps it's a sexual stimulant. Um, Song of Solomons, uh, chapter 2, verse 5, speaks of them in that way. So, into this bleak situation where nothing has changed, she is still running away, she has forgotten God, comes the stark command to go love, explained in the strong affirmation that even as Yahweh loves, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisin, go love a woman. So, few places in Scripture tell us more about divine love than this, it's constant in all circumstances present even when people are enmeshed with idolatry. It contrasts utterly with the triviality of human affections, especially when diverted to objects and not Yahweh. So we look at the contrast between God's love for a wayward wife to Israel's love for cookies. It's as if we took a passionate marriage relationship among adults and compared that to... Valentine's Day in elementary schools this past week. Where there are cooties present. (laughs) Okay? Human affections are so trivial when compared to the infinite love of a holy God. It can be illustrated through human love. When that human love has grasped something of the divine power and pathos. What Hosea has heard from God, he expresses in his love for an adulteress. So this love of God, of Yahweh for his, his people can be expressed most, most beautifully in human affections between a man and a wife who love God and love each other and understand sacrificial, unconditional love. That is a beautiful picture. And it is there for us to see that relationship that is mirrored with Yahweh in Israel. It is a commitment and an action. It's commanded with a divine imperative. Go, love. And Hosea's response in verse 2 shows how costly love can be and how degraded Gomer's condition had become. So, verse 2 says, I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethek of barley. Uh, Calvin puts it this way. It's really interesting. Um, I'm sorry I'm reading from the book, but I didn't want to type all this out. Uh, It says, servants we know were valued at 30 shekels of silver when hurt by an ox. So they're injured. They're not in pristine condition. That's from Exodus 21. But the prophet gives for his wife 15 silverlings, which seemed a contemptible gift. But then the Lord shows that though he would but scantily support his people in the exile, they would still be dear to him, as when a husband loves his wife, though he does not indulge her, when that would be inexpedient. Overmuch indulgence, as it is well known, has indeed often corrupted those who have gone astray. When a husband immediately pardons an adulterous wife, and receives her with a smiling countenance, and fawningly humbles himself by laying aside his own right and authority, he acts foolishly, and by his leniency, ruins his wife. But when a husband forgives his wife, and yet strictly confines her within the range of duty, and restrains his own feelings, such a moderate course is very beneficial, and shows no common prudence in the husband. Who, though he is not cruel, is yet not carried away by foolish love. This, then, is what the prophet means when he says that he had given for his wife fifteen silverings, and a course and a half of barley. Respectable women did not, indeed, live on barley. The prophet then gave to his wife not wheat flour, nor the fine flour of wheat, but black bread and coarse food. Yea, he gave her barley as her allowance and in a small quantity, that his wife might have but a scanty living. We now then understand the prophet's meaning. So he provides, he loves, He endures, he forgives, but again, judgment by frustration. So finally, note that the response to go love is not, so he went and loved, but I bought. Love in action. It is love that bears all that is necessary to accomplish the divine purpose. So if we want to see a story or an example of God's love for us, it's not going to simply be words. God is a God of action. He initiated everything that we've seen today. I will, I will, I will. In that day, I will, I will betrothed, I will betrothed, I will betroth. I'm a God of action. There's a divine purpose to what I'm trying to do, and it will be accomplished. Verse 3 through 5, And I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man, so will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without a king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. So Hosea's response to Yahweh's command came in two parts. First, the action that gets her back in verse 2, so I bought her, right? And number 2, the speech that lays down the terms of the reconciliation, verse 3. So it's an action followed by terms of restoration. Many days, in uh, verse 3, it must dwell in mind for many days. That must mean a period of temporary duration, in verse 4. Because the afterward of verse 5 points to a joyful climactic event where the many days have passed. So it's not many days undeterminable. It's a period of time that will come to a conclusion. The terms of verse 3 are then temporary guidelines for the restored relationship. They also do appear to be disciplinary. So the first thing is that Gomer's activities are to be sharply restricted. Earlier in chapter 2 in the judgment speech, we saw that he would put up hedges to stop her. He would confine her in order to protect her. So the same reason we ground our children is the same reason that he is grounding his wife, if you will. It's for her good. It is to prevent her from destruction, While sin is, is still sin, this sin may not be as immediately destructive to the body, to the soul, as allowing perpetual sin that could be destructive in disease, pregnancy, or even death. So Gomer's activities are sharply restricted. Dwell means to literally remain with Hosea. She's not to go anywhere. Refrain from fornication and any other sexual intimacy, including intercourse with Hosea. He is denying himself the rights due to him as husband and bridegroom. In order for her good, he is restricting that which is destroying her. Disciplinary period in the marriage is a prophetic action. Desi- I got to be careful saying prophetic. I don't want it to be pathetic. Prophetic action designed to symbolize a time of chastening and deprivation through which Israel is to pass the exile. Okay, Exile is coming. They will be without their people as a whole. They will be without their temple. They will be deprived. So Gomer is deprived of intercourse. Israel is deprived of king, prince, sacrifice, pillar, seraphim, Ephah. Verse four. The deprivation is suitable to the actions, and it is thorough. So, Israel, who relies on military might, relies on these string of terrible kings, some that only sit on the throne for a month, they will then find that every political and military office, cultic entity, or substitute for direct dependence on Yahweh's revelatory word will be stripped away. Anything else they can rely on, he will take away. So, to return and seek then means to restore to the full covenant loyalty, On the terms of repentance, trust, and obedience. The same thing that God wants in bringing all of his attributes to the covenant. It gives us the idea of repentance and return from that exile. When we will see the united kingdom that he foretold, we will see then the return of David or the fixing of Jeroboam's splitting of the throne of Israel. And ultimately, we will see the line of David come to completion and the Messiah and Jesus Christ. So we see that Israel's been restored. We see that Gomer has been restored. Their sin that brought them away is now brought before them, and then they are restored. They now have forgotten God, but he has reminded them of who he is, and they call him my God, my husband. We now identify with Gomer. I'm getting ready to sing a final song how great thou art and in a hymn like this words move quickly it's stuff that we are familiar with because it's been in church for a while but take time to identify with Gomer take time to identify how great our God is and why what, what did he do besides just forgive us what did it cost him what is he bringing to the table What has he asked of us that we fail to deliver and he still is faithful and steadfast love? As we move into the rest of the book, I mean, we're going to hammer it out next week and finish this. We need to leave today and then come next week with an understanding that we are Gomer. We need to understand that God is steadfast in his love and his covenant promises. With that, let's pray and we'll sing another song and, uh, we can warm up too. All right. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you so much for who you are. Father, your character is so clearly expressed in your word, Father, as we see the attributes of who you are, what you bring, what you promise, Father, what you do, Father, your love in action, Father, that you are intimately involved in all that we do, and Father, that you initiate it. You don't wait for us. We find in the New Testament that even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Even on the cross and even in salvation, He doesn't wait for us to be righteous before we can come to Him. But, Father, You have made a way through Your Son that we can come to You even as we are. Father, You are great. Father, as we sing to You now, break our hearts of our sin. Father, encourage us and let us see this faithful, beautiful, promised restoration that we have that we've gotten to experience in the church age father as the church the body of you father that we get to be involved in what you were doing and father that you meet us on a personal relationship on a personal level father that we can interact with you i pray all this in jesus name amen